The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Jay, do you think it's an exaggeration to say that the United States has essentially been funding both sides of the Ukrainian war? Obviously, we're giving weapons to the Ukraine to fight against Russian tanks and aircraft, but we've also been buying Russian oil until just a few days ago. And that money, of course, can easily go to buying Russian tanks and planes. So are we funding both sides or am I exaggerating? Oh, there's no question, Tom, that's exactly what we have been doing. But I'm not at all surprised. I think that we have the worst president, the worst administration. He's made Jimmy Carter look good. And I never thought that would be possible. I mean, they're really they're evil. They're tyrannical. They're socialists. They're communists. So uh, I don't expect anything different. And my tremendous optimism is based on the fact that I think it will show uh, in the November elections. And I'm very excited about learning more about that from uh, our guests that uh, you will introduce. I've got some penetrating questions. I think it's going to be a great hour for us. Yeah, for sure. One question I want to ask Bob Caston, who I'll introduce in a second, is... What's going on when, when Biden increases the amount of oil coming from Russia by about 24% over the previous year, and they cancel oil coming from the Keystone Pipeline from Canada? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Keystone XL, anyway, they still get oil from the Keystone Pipeline, but, you know, it seems a bit ludicrous. I'm going to introduce our guest. It's Washington, D.C.-based Bob Casson Jr., who was on our show a couple of months back. It was really great, so we're having him back again. After serving as a Wisconsin state senator, Bob represented Wisconsin in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. He served on both the Senate Appropriations Committee and the Senate Budget Committee and was the ranking member of the Surface Transportation Subcommittee of the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Bob played a pivotal role in the development of U.S. humanitarian and military assistance programs, including foreign military sales. So that's ideal for our show today. In 1985, President Reagan appointed Senator Kasten to the President's Export Council. Today, Bob is president of Kasten & Co., an international business consulting firm. He's also a managing member of Talos Partners, a merchant bank with offices in Salt Lake City, and a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So welcome to the show, Bob. Tom, thank you very much. Good to be with you. Bob, it is thrilling to have you back. You were amazing a few months ago, and I knew right then I would ask you to come back and probably will do that often. 
I would like for Tom and I to discuss a number of topics for our audience that your position as an insider in Washington gives you a special understanding. First, everyone wants insight on the Ukraine situation. Then we can talk about how current events may affect the midterm elections. So number one, we want to know your opinion as to what will likely be the final outcome of Putin's attack on the Ukraine. Jay, thank you. It's good to be with you. I think everyone is waiting for more information to determine a final outcome. My hope and, and my belief right now is that the final outcome is regime change in the Soviet Union. Now, that might sound a little radical, and I'm not sure exactly how regime change would, would happen, uh, but uh, whether it would be how Hitler left or how other rulers have left over history, or whether it would be some kind of move by the so-called oligarchs, or it would be some kind of move by the military. My hope and belief is that we will have some kind of regime change in Russia, and that Putin will either be dead or that Putin will no longer be part of Russia. It's possible that some country, maybe China, or maybe some other country would be willing to, to keep him in exile. He's probably the richest person in the world. Some people say over $200 billion that he either has or is under his control. He's been taking an important, some say huge slice out of all the money that he's allocated to these oligarchs over this many 15 or 20 years. We're now at a point where I believe that the only solution is regime change in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Are the military what? under his thumb to the degree that they would not oppose him? We don't know enough, or do it the other way. We know very little, and we know much less than we did four or five years ago about what actually is going on around Putin. We do know that he's more isolated now than he has ever been. Part of that isolation is his own movement away from the people that are closest to him, including a number of these oligarchs who he's no longer in touch with, according to our information from the oligarchs. It was also importantly influenced by COVID, according to, to Russia watchers, uh, that his reaction to COVID was extreme. His reaction to COVID was isolating himself from everyone, including some of his closest advisors, and particularly the, the military and intelligence advisors. So he's down to a small group of people. And I'm not sure how much of that was for show and how much of it was for, for real, but you've seen the pictures of him meeting uh, with his own so-called kitchen cabinet, and you've seen him meeting with the president of France and a couple of other world leaders, separating himself by the length of a long table and other kinds of things. But our best information is that not only the people that are involved in his defense ministry, but others are, are completely separated. So the only, in my, my opinion, the way this is going to needs to happen is he has to realize that he can't win in Ukraine. He's ruined his country. And he's now uh, in a position where his life is at stake. And if he realizes that and then goes to someone, uh, let's say someone in the Gulf, maybe in Saudi Arabia, or maybe is able to go to someone in, in Russia and to say, it's time for me to, to leave. I need some kind of safety. 
and uh, at that point, there might be an exit. On the other hand, it's, it's very possible, I think, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham has called for his assassination. Other people have called for his assassination. My judgment is that regime change is the only, only solution now and the only way we're going to get regime change. We're not going to get regime change toward, you know, through uh, deliberations and through, through debate. And we're not going to get uh, regime change by negotiation. We're going to get regime change by him losing in Ukraine and by him, him seeing that his basic plan is over, is not working. Well, and now you know, it's for uh, him and Russians in danger. You're really being, in my mind, very optimistic. And uh, I've actually written that the world will be a better place at the end of the Ukraine war for the exact reasons you stated. Of course, Ukraine will not be a better place. Uh, we, we don't know how that's going to go. But let me ask you two somewhat related uh, questions together. Uh, first, just a guess on your part. How long do you expect the battle to last? And the next question relating to it is the war has created shortages on many products, further increasing inflation. How long do you think it will take uh, for the prices that we're paying now for a loaf of bread and a gallon of gasoline to settle down? Well, there are a bunch of questions there. Let me ask. Uh, let me answer the last one first, because I want to say that uh, you've already seen Joe Biden try to blame high prices on Putin. The high prices we're having in the United States, including the high prices for gas, and Jay, you know this better than I do, are Biden's problem, not Putin's problem. They've been exacerbated by Putin, and now we have a now we have an embargo or a restriction on imports of Russian oil. I think we're probably you know, several months late with that. And uh, I'm pleased that it, it is going into effect. But when Biden now, and you've seen a couple of Democratic leaders, including Schumer, start talking about Putin's gas hike, Putin's inflationary effect, Putin's shortage of gas, look at the pump, that's Putin's problem. That's not true. They're gonna try that for a while. But this is not Putin's high gas price. This is Biden's high gas price because of his war on fossil fuels in the United States and his overall stupidity with regard to, to how they've dealt with, with uh, domestic production and uh, continue to deal with domestic production. I want to go back to it. You made a very important point, I think. And I, I believe you, we've got to get through probably one of the most disturbing parts of history that the three of us have ever lived through, watching and being aware of and participating through CNN and the news with what's happening in Ukraine. And my hope is that we as a country are going to get more involved. But I, I agree with you when you said the world is going to be a better place. And it's very important. The world is going to be a better place. We've changed the dynamics of politics, for example, in Germany. And Germany is no longer the kind of independent, wishy-washy, neutralist country. Germany is now saying it will halt the pipeline. But Germany, more importantly, you know, they began by saying they were going to send 5,000 helmets to the soldiers in Ukraine. And now Germany is participating with all of NATO in terms of supplying real defensive weapons to the soldiers in Ukraine. 
So you start with Europe. We had trouble and problems and questions about NATO, about their willingness to, to fight, about their willingness to participate in the NATO alliance, and about their willingness to spend money on defense. All those questions have changed. They're all going to meet their 2% quotas now, their 2% goal now, 2% of GDP being spent on defense. And you're seeing outside of NATO countries like Finland and Sweden participating in this overall effort against Putin in Ukraine and supporting the Ukrainian people. And you're seeing places like Poland, Moldova, the surrounding countries responding in almost unbelievably generous ways to the immigrants that are coming across the border who are, are escaping, but they're coming into to hands in which the countries themselves and the people within those countries are reaching out and trying to help them, trying to help them resettle, maybe even just trying to help them get through the night. So the world, particularly Europe, is going to be a better place. And I also believe that, uh, that I just want to make one further point here. I also believe that we are more likely to understand the problems that we have when America is viewed as weak. Peace through strength is more meaningful today than it was three months ago before Putin and Ukraine. And if, if China is thinking about becoming more aggressive, whether it's Taiwan or the South China Sea or other places, they see a little bit of a very different world right now. If wow, North yeah. Korea and Iran, they see a very different world right now. Yeah. And although this administration continues to make mistakes, including trying to still, unbelievably, but still negotiate for some kind of an Iran nuclear deal, even though this administration continues to make mistakes, the world is better because now people across the, across the world, not just in Europe, understand how important it is to not be viewed as weak and to have the ability to act against the kinds of, of horrific actions of people like Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. So Putin's plan has backfired. It's made NATO stronger. Putin's plan has completely backfired, and that's why I think we're going to be better in the years to come, because NATO is stronger. I disagreed mm -hmm. with Donald Trump. I think he was actually unfairly blamed for being against NATO. He wasn't against NATO. He was just for pushing them to meet their 2% goal of defense spending, which they had agreed to. Everyone agreed to that. And particularly led by the Germans, frankly, and other of the of the of the NATO countries, no very few were were reaching their two percent goal of spending on defense. Let me interrupt you here for a moment. It's kind of amusing to me. We had a few comments. I don't remember if it was off the air or when we started on the air uh, about the fact that uh, I'm more optimistic than uh, anybody anyone knows. And I've been optimistic, uh, strangely enough, about the war, with the exception of the plight of the people that live in the Ukraine, about the world being a better place. I think our listeners will walk away from this program feeling uh, optimistic because your views are so detailed and make so much sense. And in, at least in the, your worldview, you are certainly uh, an optimist. Now, moving a little bit to politically beyond the war, and I still want you to answer my question, how long do you expect the battle to last? But how important do you think inflation that we're experiencing from the actions of Mr. Biden and the war itself 
will be in decision making in the midterm election? I'm not sure. I don't think anybody can tell you how long uh, the war in Ukraine will be taking place. It's hardly even a war, truthfully. How long the, the attack on Ukraine will continue to take place from the Putin-led Russian forces. My judgment is that the Ukrainians will fight to the death, town by town, street by street, house by house. And uh, you know uh, a lot and have read a lot recently, I'm sure, about how it's for all practical purposes impossible to attack a town with motivated defenders like the Ukrainians will be, uh, whether it's in the smaller towns or the bigger cities. So the Russians can't possibly win militarily. They may win politically. There's a very outside chance, and we're working on it right now, to be sure that we can keep Zelensky and the people around him well and alive and continue to have them be able to lead. And if we have to transfer, if they have to transfer to a different city, or God help us to a different country, they will, and there will be a strong government in exile in Ukraine that the Ukrainian people will continue to listen to and follow. And it's so hard to use the word optimistic <laughs> at the same time that we're talking about this horror that is seeing, we're seeing before us that, you know, none of us ever believed this could happen again in, in Europe. We thought this is not possible. So I, I think that the, the time as to when it's going to end is, is very difficult, but it cannot end, it will not end, it will never end with a victory for Vladimir Putin. And I think we're seeing, it's horrible for the Russian people as well as for the Ukrainian people, because we're seeing the slow deterioration, you might say destruction of the very limited economy that Russia has had. And I think we could very easily be looking in two or three years at a Russia that's very much like North Korea, as opposed to a Russia that we kind of had imagined coming closer and closer to the way of life and the beliefs in, in Europe. So it sounds like the resistance of the Ukrainians is something they must keep up in your opinion. The resistance of the Ukrainian people is absolutely fundamental. And I believe that the leadership of Zelensky is very, very important to the resistance of the Ukrainians. And there's no way that, uh, that uh, you can overemphasize the importance of the morale and the, the uh, we can use the word optimism here, Jay, and the optimism of the Ukrainian people that their country will survive and that many of their families will survive and they can rebuild those parts of Ukraine, those cities, those buildings, those hospitals. Today, a maternity hospital was, was bombed. Whether it was aimed at or not is not clear, but a maternity hospital was bombed today by the Russians. And uh, the fact is that the Ukrainians have been extraordinary. And what you said, Tom, is right. Their leadership, their courage is fundamental, is, is, is crucial. And I believe it's going to continue. And I believe that the Russian forces are going to be defeated. Well, back to my question on how is this going to impact our midterm elections, if at all? Without Ukraine, the Biden administration and the Democrats were in terrible difficulty. And I think now they're in greater difficulty 
in terms of looking at the 2022 so-called midterm elections. We're at a point now, and this wasn't during Ukraine, a point now where 31 Democratic congressmen and, and uh, women have decided not to run for election. Many of them, importantly, many of them in pretty safe Democratic seats. The fact is those people just didn't want to go back to be in the minority. And they also didn't want to go back to continue to participate. Some of these Democrats were more moderate, middle of the road Democrats, if there are such a thing left. But some of these people were on the more moderate side of the Democratic Party. And they just, they're tired, they're, they're fed up. And they didn't want to go back. They're right now committee chairman and subcommittee chairman. And when the Republicans take control, which they will, take the majority of the House of Representatives, these people that were committee chairmen uh, will no longer be committee chairman because it will be the Republicans who are in charge. Kevin McCarthy or another Republican will be the speaker and all the committee chairmen and all the committee sub-chairmen sub will switch from being Democrat to being Republican. We've also got inflation and we talked about that earlier and they're gonna try to blame all the inflation on Putin, particularly the gas price inflation on Putin and that we can't let them get away with that. We will be successful, I hope, in having a very strong campaign. And I think it's going to be a terrible election for Joe Biden. It also makes you think that the canceling of the Keystone XL pipeline must be revisited. I mean, surely that's a, a clear and obvious blunder on the part of the Biden government. I think it's wider. Yes, I agree with you completely. But I, and, and under the Republicans, the Keystone pipeline will not be the only thing, but it'll be one of the primary things. That it's going to that will be reconsidered. Unfortunately, Biden is still president, so you can't change all these policies simply with a vote. We can will be able to win votes in the House and the Senate, but we won't have a president. You know, hopefully, or it's possible that his what I believe is a, a war on fossil fuels that the Biden administration has been running is over when he loses the support in that war from his troops, if you will in the House and the Senate. I mean, it's, it's the Democratic left, some of the wacko left that's been driving him. And unfortunately, uh, unlike the way he was 30 years ago in the, as a senator, unfortunately, he's bought off on this whole routine. Even today, I mean, we need to replace that Russian oil and we also need to see the prices come down. Mm -hmm. We ought to be aggressively looking toward pipeline. We ought to be aggressively looking toward fracking. We ought to be aggressively looking toward independence. We were going aggressively toward independence, toward energy independence and exporting energy under Donald Trump. We've got to return to that time. The idea that somehow uh, we're going to end up with electric and wind solving the problem of our country with or without the 8% of the oil coming from Russia is just crazy. Tom and I know that. I mean, this is what we cut our teeth on every morning, trying to reverse things, writing in or articles and speaking it in different places. But what can the House actually accomplish? Let's assume we have the Senate. Let's assume Biden is the same person. We have the southern border. Can we have any impact on the southern border? Can we have any impact on the absurdity of uh, you know, uh, the Secretary of Transportation, uh, Buttigieg, the other day said we shouldn't worry about gas light prices because everybody will be driving electric cars. What can we do about that stupidity? We're going to be limited. 
as long as Biden's in the White House. And that's why the election in 2024 is so important. But the first thing we'll do about this stupidity is stop it. Stop it from continuing. Limit him only to executive orders and other kinds of things that he could do on his own and that we have the opportunity through the appropriations process to take money away from. In other words, we can stop certain things that he's trying to do if they require government money, including certain kinds of regulations, because you can say none of the funds can be expended in the enforcement of X, Y, Z. But in terms of taking action on something, being proactive, it's much, much more difficult. But in the process, we're also going to start to win. And this is the optimism piece. We are winning the hearts and minds of American voters all across this country. American voters all across this country. And just as what we've watched, and we were talking earlier about NATO and that whole, the European view of history and the European view of national defense and the European view of autocrats and the European view of China and Russia, just as that's changed. We're also seeing a huge change in our country. It's gonna be more than just the votes. And we're seeing it in voting for school board. We're seeing it in San Francisco with a 70-30 vote in favor of a school board change. We're seeing changes all across this country too. You know, we don't win the presidency in 2022. We elect a legislature that will stop Biden. And then we move forward, try to change and stop as much as we can with Biden, but it's gonna be very hard to rebuild. You talked about, uh, and you know much more about this, you guys, but you know, we end up by taking away the Russian oil, and I agree that we should have put an embargo on Russian oil and gas uh, months ago. But the point, where does Biden go? Where's one of his first stops? Venezuela. I mean, this is just craziness. And the relationship that we have with our former friends, I know OPEC is difficult, and I know OPEC is hard, but the Saudi Arabians and the people of the United Arab Emirates are places that can can produce a lot of oil and gas and can produce it, can can change their production numbers almost overnight. Two, who are two places that, that, that Biden is, has been avoiding talking to since he's been elected president, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And what has happened over the last two or three weeks, it hasn't been covered enough in the media, but Biden tried to call the ruler of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia refused his call. And the same thing has happened in the United Arab Emirates and the ambassador to the United Arab Emirates, Yosef Oteba here in Washington has also spoken out about the fact that the Biden administration has ruined the relationships with so many of the important countries in the Gulf and in particular in our country. And I'm familiar somewhat with Egypt. We've done the same thing in Egypt. So, I mean, this is just craziness, what this Biden administration and what this State Department and frankly, this Defense Department is doing under these difficult, difficult circumstances. We're going to have to take a break. But after the break, the first question I want to ask you is, who in America is still supporting Biden? (laughs) I don't understand that he has what, 35, 36 people still behind him. I'd like to know who they are. But uh, I know we have to take a break now and uh, we'll be right back after our commercial.
Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash outloud. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko knows a thing or two about the immune system. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize for his early COVID-19 treatments, and now he's offering his Z-Stack supplements to our listeners at a discount. Just go to zstacklife.com slash freedom. That's zstacklife.com slash freedom. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Bob, Biden's approval rating is at an all-time low. I think it's approaching the low 30s now. But I'm curious that it's that high. Who are the people in the country still supporting this man who is doing terrible things to everybody in the country? Inflation now has hit everybody. There's nobody that doesn't go to the gas pump to buy inflated price gas or go to the supermarket to buy a very expensive loaf of bread. Who are these people? Well, if you break down the numbers the way the pollsters do, they look at Republicans, independents, and Democrats. Among Republicans, Biden is about 90-10, 10% supporting him. Among independents, and this is really important, it's gone to 60-40. Normally, the Democrats would be, I mean, the, the independents would be, you know, about 50-50. 
it's gone to 60, 40, and in some polls, it's in the 30s now, with only less than a third or about a third of the independents supporting. Unfortunately, you look at the Democrats and the numbers switch, although the numbers in the Democrats right now are about 70, 30. In other words, there are 30% of the Democrats that have already given, also given up on him. And in both the cases of the independents and the Democrats, it's still continuing to lose. I mean, who are those people? These are dedicated Democrats. These are Democratic leadership. These are big city leadership. These are people on the East Coast and the West Coast primarily. These are people in large cities primarily. And uh, whether you look at Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, Austin, look at the large cities. Uh, there still is a very strong traditional group of Democrats who just are going to be for the Democrat no matter what. And uh, Joe Biden understands that if there's any place where he still has at least some traction, it's in these Democratic cities. And it's one of the reasons why every time he speaks, he starts talking about being, you know, from Pennsylvania and Philadelphia boy and all this. He He's trying to identify with that dwindling number of people who are in the larger cities who still support the general liberal point of view. But I, he's losing in every case. I mean, they're losing in every category, but most importantly for the election, they're losing among the independents. The Democrats, if he gets to below, much below where he is, 30, 35, um, it's not gonna be the vote so much as it is what's called enthusiasm or the enthusiasm gap. In other words, the, in order to get the people out to vote, they have to be in favor of candidate. They have to be ideally excited about the candidate. They have to be ideally devoted to the candidate, believe that he is or she is terrific. Now, if you've got these numbers among your own party, you've got these numbers, you've got for sure an enthusiasm gap. So that switches over to election day and the overall turnout and the difficulty that the Democrats are going to have in this election. Is it possible they could choose a different candidate for the Democrats? I think it's very possible that there could be a different candidate for the Democrats. And that's a whole nother discussion. But let me just touch on two parts of it. Joe Biden's the oldest president of the United States we've had. Most people believe that he's not going to be the, the candidate in 2024. Then you take the quick step. Okay, then the vice president runs. Well, the vice president's Kamala Harris, and it's pretty hard to believe that she can be the presidential candidate. For sure, she'll have a primary. And then you start to go through the different people that ran for president, Buttigieg and other people we've talked about. Think about some of the governors, some of the others. Who's going to be the Democratic candidate if Joe Biden is not and that Kamala Harris is not? All of a sudden, in this crazy way, and this crazy political world we're living in, that's the reason why Hillary Clinton is running for president right now. Uh, mm -hmm. She's running and she's going to keep running until she loses, along with you know several other people that are running. Uh, but the fact is that it's not at all clear who this Democratic Party, this leaning to the left, hard left Democratic Party, is going to have as their presidential nominee. And uh, that person may or may not be able to, it's likely not, be able to excite this democratic uh, dwindling uh, democratic support group that they have. Mm -hmm. If Biden wants to run, but the party doesn't want him to run, can they stop him? 
if Biden wants to run, I think it's likely that he'll be able to run because he controls the Democratic National Committee and he, he controls the, the money, basically, the campaign contribution money. And I think it'd be very difficult for someone. You could argue that a, a very wealthy candidate, a Michael Bloomberg kind of candidate or a uh, uh, who would be willing to, to spend a, a large number of, you know, of, their own, of their own dollars could challenge Biden in a democratic primary. But that is, I think, very unlikely and would be difficult to do. But yes, he could be challenged. What's interesting is everybody just assumes that if, if Camilla Harris were the candidate, she'd be challenged for sure. And that would be history making. I mean, generally speaking, you have the vice president ready to become president and ready to run as president to succeed the president. That certainly is not the case with these two individuals right now. She is as bad a vice president as he has been a president. Some would argue even worse. I'd like to shift the conversation right now to China and get your opinions, good, bad, and ugly. I'd like to know if the Olympics had any impact on anything. Few watched, and my understanding is the athletes never really saw China. They were essentially in a walled uh, city. So, and you mentioned earlier that China's going to be a little more cautious now with uh, their saber rattling because of what they're seeing with Putin and the Ukraine. So uh, give us a synopsis of uh, where China is today. I think the most important thing about the Olympics was that Putin went to China and met with the leadership of China and shook hands and signed this agreement of working together, China and Russia, as lifelong friends, et cetera, et cetera. That, I believe, is the most important thing that happened at the Olympics. And uh, we'll go, I'll touch on the fact that Chinese aren't quite as enthusiastic about that as they were at that time. The best information we have now is that at that time, the Chinese knew that Putin was going to attack Ukraine and that the Chinese asked Putin to delay his attack on Ukraine until after the Olympics, which he did. So the relationship between Russia and China is an important one, and it's a relationship that's been going on and building and developing over the last several years, particularly over the last two or three years, and now particularly over the last two or three weeks. Obviously, China had a vote in the United Nations, but interesting, China abstained on the vote of the United Nations. They did not vote, they did not vote no in the Security Council where they could have. There are other places where China has tried to legally, if you will, kind of disassociate itself or associate itself less directly with Putin himself, although they still want to be working with Russia. I think that the relationship between Putin and China is probably the most important issue for the Chinese leadership, for Xi Jinping, for the Chinese leadership, the most important overriding issue that they're looking at right now. And they're trying so hard to, number one, not be part of the problems that, that uh, Putin is creating economically worldwide. But at the same time, uh, China has, has agreed that they will be a customer for Russian products, including oil and gas. And China has agreed to try to be helpful to Russia in terms of financial issues. Uh, they will be their banker. 
China will be their credit card. China will be their way through international commerce. And uh, China will be working with Russia in order to try to mitigate the problems that are going to be caused or being caused by the overall economic sanctions that have been applied. Mm -hmm. You know, China essentially takes over a fair bit of African countries when they become their bankroller. Do you think they may end up taking over parts of Russia, essentially, in the background? There could be a, a closer relationship between some of the bordering parts of Russia, but my judgment is that China doesn't want to take over the problems that uh, the former Soviet Union, and particularly what might be called the former Russia, has right now. And those problems are going to be worse. And uh, the other is that being associated with Putin, and particularly in particular, but being in, in associated with Russia, with not being associated with the rest of the world against Russia and for Ukraine is a big problem. So the least that they have, the less that they can separate themselves, the more they can separate themselves, the more they can be able to say a year from now or two years from now that they were not, you know, they're going to sit, use where, well, we didn't object, but we certainly didn't support the Putin-Russian effort or something like that. They want to, I'm not talking about uh, plausible deniability because the world is, is looking at them, but they do not want to be any more closely associated with Putin and Russia right now than, than they can be. Well, I've gone out on a limb with all my friends that I talk politics with that I would bet all the tea in China that China will not invade Taiwan. Now, I thought that really learning most of what I know about that from you in our last program. But I think now watching what has happened in Ukraine it's even less likely. Do you see any real chance that after all that's going on, that China would invade Taiwan? I agree with you completely. I think it's less likely than it was, than it was six months ago, and uh, certainly less likely than it was six weeks ago. I think that uh, it's not only, not only China and Taiwan, but this is going to, this is going to affect the way the, the Iranians look at the United States of America. This is going to affect the way the uh, North Koreans uh, look at the United States of America. This is going to affect people all over the world, including our friends. I mean, for sure, the Germans and the French look at us differently now than they did a few months ago. Leadership, peace through strength works. It's just that simple. And what we had, we've now interrupted a whole process that's been taking place I mean, beginning with the Obama administration. I mean, Russia took over Georgia with barely a fight. Russia took over Crimea with no fight at all, just part of Ukraine. Russia basically took over Syria or greatly assisted Assad in Syria with barely a peep from the Obama administration, except for a speech that Obama made, if they cross this red line, ever use chemical weapons against their own citizens, we will act. Well, you all remember what happened on that non-action after the uh, Syrians crossed that red line, used chemical weapons on their own citizens, and the United States did nothing. The free world did nothing. 
So you had this you had this pattern going. Now, finally, after what twenty years, we've broken the pattern, and by breaking that pattern, it changes activities, it changes the opinions of the Chinese on Taiwan, but it also is going to change the opinions of of other countries like North Korea and Iran and others. It looks as if the United States has gotten a little more common sense. It look as, looks as if the United States has become more aware of the importance of leading from a position of strength. And it looks as if the United States and NATO, the free world, has come together now like they haven't been together recently. So it's not just Europe. You know, we've seen Japan. I mean, Japan is a very important country in this discussion about China. Japan has been coming to the rescue and been very supportive of the Ukrainians. So the, the point is we've changed what we allowed to happen over the last 20 years through stupidity, in my view, and through wrong thinking. I mean, the, the amazing thing, interesting thing is that the Obama White House, the State Department people, the Defense Department people, the National Security Council, many of those people are now back, but they're also the same people that kept saying, well, we might have to increase, they kept watching for the last six months, watching as Russia built up and built up and built up with their military on the borders of Ukraine. And these people all said, well, we need more negotiations. These people said, well, we, they probably won't, uh, but we need to do more. Even those people now, I mean, they've been woken up, they've been mugged by reality. And the fact is well, that people like Vladimir Putin are evil and the free world need to be prepared to stop him when he does things like invade Ukraine. Now, let me stop you for a moment. One of the exciting things that you're conveying to our listeners is that the U.S. has played a major role, that we have somehow uh, led in getting everybody to support uh, the anti-Putin, anti-Russian invasion. Uh, explain why you feel we've gained so much in this area? I think that the people that have led this effort are the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians have embarrassed and in a way even, well, embarrassed and humiliated Biden and, his, and this administration, but have also energized them to frankly start to do what many people have been urging them to do and, and the Democrats and, and, and this is in part Republican administrations too over this period of time, uh, we've, we've been mugged by reality, we've been woken up. I'm not saying that this would be the first choice. I mean, look at how long it took Biden, uh, even today. It took Biden two, what, two weeks, three weeks? People have been calling for a, an embargo on Russian oil and gas by our country for two weeks. He finally did it yesterday. Uh, we're, we're discussing no-fly zones. We're discussing other ways of helping. Biden was turning down Javelin and Stinger missiles to Ukraine in February. We had people wanting to, wanting to deliver defensive weapons into Ukraine while the Russians were massing on the borders. And this administration was not willing at that time to share these weapons. Now, that's all changing. It's all changed. But my point is that, yes, they were mugged by reality. It's not that this was kind of all of a sudden they had a come to Jesus moment and, and decided that they, were, that they were now aware of things that they weren't aware of before. They still have a basic kind of 
left-wing liberal understanding of foreign policy. Uh, but you can't have that today. I would say the same thing in a way of the Germans, although um, it's turning out that uh, the new German government is, is much, much better than uh, we thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. you, you talked about no-fly zones. Wow, that would be pretty risky, wouldn't it, for us to actually enforce over the Ukraine? Wouldn't that lead to a direct conflict with Russian fighters? Well, you know, what you just said, it would lead to a direct conflict with Russia or with Russian fighters are not too dissimilar to the words in 2006 or 2008 when the issue is what should we be doing in Georgia? Do we want to take a stand? It might force us to be in direct conflict with the Russians. Mm -hmm. And we said no, and we didn't. And the same thing in these other instances that I, that I spoke about. In Donbass, in the area, the eastern part of, of Ukraine, in Crimea. So, yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's a risk. But the question is how long do we watch the carnage? How long do we watch the evil before our faces? How long do we want to watch World War II be repeated before we say it's worth the risk to disturb the Russians in order to stop? this horrific behavior. Mm -hmm. now, I don't know what the answer to that is, but the, yeah. the, the point is we have made the decision now that we are gonna help Ukraine with defensive weapons. Uh, my hope and belief is that with those defensive weapons are coming some people that with them are coming people that know how to maintain and how to work, how to train people to use those, those, those defensive weapons. And my hope is that there's more going on in intelligence sharing in Ukraine with US and allied intelligence agencies than is being talked about. And I don't want it to be talked about it, but I want it to be going on. There are three or four alternatives now talking about different ways of working out no-fly zones, including a no-fly zone that would just, just basically be dedicated to uh, escape routes from the major cities so the mm. civilians can escape. I'm not sure which of those ways need to be considered, but I no longer want our government or anyone to say, whoa, we better not do this because it might upset the Russians. Mm -hmm. Do you think the nuclear deterrent is anything to be scared of with respect to Russia? Absolutely. I think the nuclear, the fact that he put his nuclear forces on higher alert uh, a week or so ago, that's an important decision, although we didn't see we listened to the words, but we didn't see any activities at his nuclear places, at his nuclear bases that we're watching. We didn't see changes happen. I mean, there wasn't, there were no changes on the ground. And we didn't, we weren't aware of changes under the sea that took place after he made that announcement of increasing the, the threat level or whatever it was called. But the, the fact is we have to be prepared. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a very strong, we have a very strong nuclear force. I don't want to use it, but I don't want to preclude decisions that we make in, in Ukraine over the next two or three or four or five days, only on the basis, well, be careful, because we might be close to, you know, we might force us closer to a nuclear war. Putin is more scared of, and should be more scared of a nuclear war than we are. Uh, Putin will be dead and Moscow will be, I mean, a nuclear war will completely destroy Russia.
So you don't think he's likely to do it under any circumstances with respect to Ukraine? Oh, I, he, I, I, that's. Him. I don't think. I, I think the risk is that we cannot afford to come to the rescue of the Ukrainians in meaningful ways. I don't think, for example, with a limited no-fly zone covering non-combatants, I don't. Th my belief is that that would not push Putin into a nuclear strike. That's my belief. But that's, you know, you could have a different belief. But my point is, we're wrong to take things off the table. Frankly, we were wrong to say we'd never use troops. We, we might make a decision to never use troops. We'll never use boots on the ground. But we didn't have to say that. We don't want to take away options that, that may be concerning to our enemy. So you don't think Putin is crazy the way Fidel Castro wanted the missiles launched from Cuba? He wanted a nuclear war. I don't believe that Putin wants a nuclear war, but I do believe that Putin is, if he's not crazy, he's going crazy. And we talked earlier about, about the, the, the fact that he's com seemingly completely isolated now. So there are no guarantees here. This is, this is very tough stuff. Mm -hmm. But we also have the, the country of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people to stand up with and support. Uh, Bob, I'd like to turn back for a moment uh, to the election. What you have done for our listeners, so we usually have 20,000 listeners in total. Uh, they're all going to walk away from this program with an understanding of uh, world politics, the war, Russia, Ukraine, uh, that they couldn't get anywhere else. I'm, I'm just astounded. This sounds funny, but we air the show a couple times on Saturday and, and Sunday, and I can't wait to listen to it again. But I want to uh, turn to the election again. We know that the Dems will continue to get almost all black votes in November. But where do other minorities stand, Latinos, Asians and, and Jews, in the light of everything that's gone on in the last year and what's going on in the world today? Do you see any changes in those subgroups, Latinos, Asians and Jews? The overall point of view right now among Republican polling is simply amazing how positive it is and how well we're doing with a number of groups of people that we've never done with, we've never done well with before. And let me begin by the, the uh, Latino community, the Hispanic community, whether it's on the border of Texas, whether it's in California in these special elections, whether we've seen We've seen in New Jersey, believe it or not, and particularly in Virginia, the election, the governor's race, the governor's race in Virginia, we won half the Hispanic votes. And the, uh, the governor's race in New Jersey, we made huge improvements in Hispanic votes. The Hispanic votes are moving our way. And uh, the Hispanic votes are continuing to move our way, primarily on economic issues. So I'm very optimistic. There's also reason to be optimistic with the other groups that you spoke about. I'm very optimistic that we're picking up votes due to Tim Scott and a number of other Black Republican leaders. We are really making progress with what I would say the law and order community in the Black community. This idea that somehow Black voters in cities want to defund the police is simply not true. Yes, there's some black politicians in those cities, but on defund the police, on economic opportunity, on school choice, 
the black vote is changing on school choice tremendously. They very much want a chance to get their kid out of a poor school in the middle of the city and into a school that might be a Catholic school, it might be a school choice school, it might be a, a voucher school, whatever. So the Hispanic vote we're doing much, much better with. The black vote we're doing much, much better with. And there are indications, particularly because of the education issue, that we're doing much, much better with the Asian American vote. That vote is particularly concerned about this whole idea that the kind of far left liberals have is that you judge equality based on, what can I say, not opportunity, but results. In other words, that they don't want to have schools that take only the best. They don't want to have schools that are taking people that are in high level classes where they'll take a person that's good at science and put them into a, a better science class. The Asian community is very much interested in education based on excellence and opportunity based on accomplishment. And what we saw this particularly in California and some of the school board elections out there, they're fed up with people basically taking and saying, you know, we should be taking people based on the percentage of racial groups that we have in our school as opposed to excellence achieved in previous education or on achieve, achievement tests or aptitude tests or both. So that the Asian American community has really come along with us on schools, on education. And so in all those groups we're doing, we're doing much, much better. What we, mm. we, we, we talked very briefly about, about the Jewish community. I think that uh, there are a number of issues there, uh, certainly, they are as frustrated as they could be by the Biden administration's foreign policy. And I think the, the efforts that Trump made through the Abraham Accords with bringing Israel closer to a number of the Arab countries is helping us there too. So, but I'm particularly excited and particularly enthusiastic about the Latino community and the Asian American community. Okay, so we're just about out of time, unfortunately. This is uh, Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris with our guest, Bob Kasten, a former U.S. Senator and House of Representatives member, signing out from the other side of the story.